you to begin uh, by just imagining, imagining someone. Uh, let's call her Katrina. Can't don't think there's any Katrinas in here, but let's let's, um, let's imagine someone. Katrina. She's shopping in town, uh, and she sees a, a beautiful dress. Uh, maybe she's coming into the summer. She sees a beautiful summer dress that she really likes. The trouble is, she's not sure she can afford it. So what she decides to do is not look at her bank balance before she buys it, and buys it anyway. Um, the logic is, well, if I, if, I wasn't, if I didn't know what was in my bank account, I can't be then blamed for going into overdraft, can I? Okay, Ignorance can be bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Uh, or imagine Kevin. Kevin uh, comes home from work and he strongly suspects that his boss has sent him an email with a list of stuff that he needs to do urgently for the next day. It's been a long day. So what Kevin decides to do is leave his phone unchecked in his coat pocket in the hall and switches on Netflix. I'll read it tomorrow uh, and by then there'll probably not be enough time to do everything on the list anyway. You see, ignorance can be bliss. Ignorance can be bliss. Uh, I've been working at this church now for seven years, roughly. Um, And in those seven years, I have resisted any attempt whatsoever, sorry, John, to find out how the sound desk works. Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Even worse than that, I have been married for 16 years. And I have resisted every attempt, any attempt, to learn how to iron a shirt. Uh, Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble for that from all of you probably later. Okay, ignorance is bliss. You get the idea? Sometimes uh, we think ignorance is bliss. Why Why is ignorance bliss? Because by burying your head in the sand... um, By pretending the problem isn't there, we sometimes think it lets us off the hook. It lets us off the hook. We can't be expected to do anything about it if we deliberately don't find out anything about it and we don't know anything about it. Ignorance can be bliss. And there's so many people, uh, when it comes to knowledge of God, think that ignorance is bliss. They work pretty hard at preserving their ignorance, deliberately not trying to get to know anything about God because they believe that if I don't know anything about him, then I can't be expected to do anything with regard to God. Ignorance is bliss, or so they think. But what we see in the psalm, we see two things in this song that David wrote so long ago. We see two things. Number one, it is knowledge of God, not ignorance of God, that is bliss. It is knowledge of God that is bliss. And ignorance of God is actually, has to be, and can only be, willful and culpable. Willful and culpable. Why is that? Because God has made himself known. He's made the truth about himself known. He has spoken. He has spoken. And it's not a burden. It's not, oh, no, now I know stuff about God. Oh, now I'm going to have to do something about it. No, for David to know the truth about God is actually a great delight. It's a wonderful joy. Uh, And as we read this, uh, we will see that this is a song 
This is a song for David. The knowledge of God, the fact that God has made the truth about himself known. Prose won't do it. He reaches for poetry. Speech isn't good enough. Uh, he writes a song. And notice that it's, it's not just uh, a song that he's composed for himself that he can sing in the shower, right? Just look down at the heading just under Psalm 19. And, and these words in each psalm are actually inspired. They're part of the original text for the director of music, a psalm of David. This is the fact that God has made the truth about himself known Uh, that he has spoken is a cause for such celebration that he writes this song and he gives it to the music director. He gives it to uh, Chris McLennan and Ali McLennan to write a tune for it uh, so that all of God's people can learn it and sing it with great joy. Um, God, according to David, in this wonderful song, which I think if we knew the original tune for it, it would be upbeat, and in a major key, it is a song, a, a song of great joy and delight be, uh, because there's two reasons and two ways, sorry, God has communicated. Two ways God has communicated. And it's not by text and Twitter. It's not by instant messenger and Instagram. He has communicated in two ways. According to the song, he has communicated. He has spoken through the sky, through the skies. And then second, he has spoken through the scriptures. And then at the very end of the song, we see the model response then to the speech of God uh, in verses 12 to 14. But we're going to look at those two big ideas this morning. First, God speaks to us through the skies. God speaks to us through the skies. David invites us to look out the window. When I look out the window, I tend to be very unproductive Uh, as I'm gazing out into the middle distance. But when David looks out the window, he actually produces great poetry. Uh, And so David invites us to look out the window with him and to look up at the sky and to see the awesome beauty of the sky. Uh, Now, whether that's the the sky by day uh, with the sun, with all the associated spectacular colors of sunrise and sunset, uh, or the scale of the sky uh, with all its its, uh, massive scope and breadth, Uh, or it's maybe the night sky to look up at the moon and the stars, the stars sparkling like diamonds against the back uh, uh, velvet backdrop uh, of the night sky. David is saying, look up, and when you look up and see the sky, what should you think? Well, you should think that the skies declare, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The skies are telling you something. They're telling you something of the glory and the skill and the power and the goodness of God. Uh, back in 2009, um, we, uh, during the competition of Britain's Got Talent, there was one audition, there was one audition that uh, captured everyone's attention. And it captured, it captured attention internationally. Um, and it was when uh, one slightly disheveled 48-year-old lady walked out onto the stage. And as she did so, the whole audience smirked and giggled and laughed at her. 
uh, as she walked out on stage and answered her first question in a slightly embarrassing way, uh, the judges started to look at each other and smirk to one another. But, but, I don't know, you should check out the, the YouTube clip. It still gives me goosebumps. Uh, but when she opened her mouth, when Susan Boyle sung, nobody was laughing anymore. What we saw, what we heard, was skill, uh, a sound that revealed a massive, massive talent that we couldn't ignore, that had to be reckoned with from now on. What David is saying is when we look up at the sky and we see the masterpiece that is there, it should also reveal to us a massive, massive talent behind that masterpiece. Uh, the massive talent of God himself. But we have an incredible ability not to hear that message as human beings. We'll come to that in a second. We have an incredible ability not to hear it. And so for many people, they insist on hearing less than the skies are speaking. And so there are many, many people today who look up at the universe, who look at the sky, uh, and see it just as part of a whole cosmos that just is there. It just was coughed up by the cosmos um, just by accident. It's just there because it's there. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no maker. It just is there. Uh, and if that's who you are then here this morning, then you will be deaf to the speech of the sky. You will be deaf to the communication that God is speaking out through the masterpiece that he's made. But there's another group of people, and the other group of people are those who insist on hearing more than the sky is really saying. Uh, there are those who look up and see undoubtedly that there's something significant and spectacular uh, in the sky. Um, but what they assume, that, it, that, that sense of the, the awesome and the transcendent actually leads them to superstition and astrology seeing the sky as more significant than it really is. Uh, what we see as Bible readers, however, or what we should see when we look at the sky, is that it is the work of God's hands and fingers. Uh, if you read the first pages of the Bible, uh, we've got this, the, most, the, yeah, the most spectacular throwaway line in all of literature. And he also made the stars. He also made the stars. In our galaxy alone, there's a hundred million stars. And our galaxy is one of a hundred million galaxies. Just that sink in just for a second. And God made it all with a word. It reflects his skill and his power. Um, why does David focus on the skies here and not the mountains and not the trees and not the flowers uh, there's all, part, all sorts of parts of creation that he could have picked up on that reveal the skill and the power and the presence of God. Why does he pick uh, the skies? I think for two reasons. First is because of their universal access, their universal access. I grew up in the west of Ireland, uh, not, never very far from the Atlantic coast, uh, never very far from the Blue Stack Mountains. I was familiar with the sea and the mountains. 
But then uh, for a while, uh, as a family, we lived in the Midlands in England, which was as flat as a pancake and was as far away from the, s- the shore as you could get in England, uh, at least three hours' drive away from the sea. We just didn't have access to those parts of creation. But you see, for David, he recognizes that everybody, everybody has access to the sky. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, you have access to that part uh, of God's creation. All you need to do is look up. You don't need to be in a particular time zone You don't need to be like Vodafone in a particular place just to get the signal. Um, No, no, everybody has access to it. Uh, If you look down to verse 3, if you've got the 1984 uh, NIV, just ignore the word where in verse 3. It is not there in the original. Uh, Verse 3 should read like this. There is no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. David is saying that the the skies communicate with wordless words. What does that mean? How can the sky communicate with wordless words? Well, it communicates in much the same way as uh, a painter can communicate through his painting. Uh, So if you look at one of the great masters, uh, you look at Rembrandt uh, and the Night Watch or whatever it is, one of his great masterpieces, as you look at that painting, you will see something. You will hear something uh, of the skill of the master. You will see something of what he's interested in. Uh, you will learn something about his, his talent uh, and expertise. And in the same way, we should look around at God's masterpiece, his creation, and be convinced uh, of God's skill and God's talent. Uh, and no matter who you are, no matter where you live, you have access to that communication of God. David picks the skies because of their universal access. He picks the skies because of their undisputed grandeur. Their undisputed grandeur. I think we we all want to say, no matter if you have an eye for beauty or not, a sunrise is spectacular. And if you don't see that, then there's actually something wrong with you. Yeah? Yeah? The night sky away from the light pollution of the, of the city, uh, out in the country to see all the stars clearly sparkling in the night sky. That is spectacular. And if you don't see that, there's something wrong with you. David uses two uh, images. He, f- he focuses just to capture something of how spectacular the sky is. He zooms in on just one uh, body in the sky, the sun. And he uses two images for the sun just to capture how spectacular the sky is. He uses the image first uh, of the sun being like a bridegroom coming out uh, of his pavilion. Now, we don't get this image very clearly because our culture is different. If you uh, say you're in the dentist, I don't know anyone who buys the tattler. Forgive me if you do, you buy the tattler. But say you're in the dentist or whatever and you open the tattler and you read the Ulster tattler and there's a society wedding. Uh, the big write-up and the pictures are all there. You will read, and, and what will the fo- who will the focus be on in the article? 
The bride. It's always to do with the bride. It's her dress and it's her hair and it's her veil and her bridesmaids. And right down the bottom, oh, oh look, the groom was also there, right? And he's just totally irrelevant, really, because uh, it's all about the bride. It's her big day. Um, but in the ancient Near East, it was completely different. It was completely different. The focus of attention uh, on a wedding day was the groom. He was the one who was spectacular in his dress. He was the one everyone was looking at. And that's what makes sense of some of those parables that Jesus told about waiting for the bridegroom coming uh, as he marched out with a whole army of people behind them, uh, chest puffed out to to woo and to win his bride on the day. Um, It's a picture of beauty and splendor and glory. Uh, And so the sun is a picture of beauty and splendor and glory. Uh, He also compares the sun to a strong man or or an athlete, a champion, running uh, his course. Uh, Think of the marathon runner running, you know, home straight on the marathon, uh, you know, after the 26-odd miles, just coming up to the finish line. That's a picture of joy but it's also a picture of strength and stamina to make it that distance. Um, and what David is saying is that the sun, in all its awesome power, with its life-giving energy, with its light and heat and beauty, is just an example. It's just a snippet of the creativity, the power, the glory, and the goodness of the one who designed and made it God himself. The skies tell us something about the glory of God. They speak with wordless words uh, about the reality of God's presence uh, and power. Now, I don't know what you think uh, or how you think about creation. Today's a beautiful day, and we all maybe have a great opportunity this afternoon to maybe go for a walk. But what do you, what do you think? What goes through your brain when you look and see the beauty of nature. Are you tempted to think, oh, nature is pretty? Well, I would want to say, I hope you at least think that, but and it shows you're observant. Uh, but you should, as a Christian, think more than that, shouldn't you? You should make the logical next step. Nature is beautiful, but isn't God wonderful for designing and making nature in the way that he's done so? You see, it's true that God has taken the initiative. He's revealed something about his presence and his power, his skill, his eye for beauty uh, in the world that he's made. Uh, Paul captures, the Apostle Paul captures a very similar idea to Psalm 19 in the verse that should appear uh, on the screen behind me. He writes these words, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul is saying that it actually takes effort not to hear the communication of God through nature. It is possible to suppress it and push it down, to try to preserve your ignorance of God. It's possible to do that, but it's going to take effort to do that. 
Because the reality is, we are not ignorant of God. We're not ignorant of God. Creation shouts out his name. Um, He has been clearly revealed from the world uh, that he has made. But David uh, can only read the communication of nature, the communication of the sky, properly because he has experienced a communication of another kind that is even clearer. Um, let Let me explain how the logic of this psalm works. He's been talking about how we can know something of God from the world that he's made. Creation shouts out his name with wordless words. We're without excuse. No one can realistically, logically say, I'm ignorant of God. I don't believe there is a God because of the creation, the order and the beauty, magnitude and complexity of this world. Um, But it's not enough. It's not enough. Uh, Again, confession time. Uh, As I grew up in the the late 90s, well, early 90s, okay, early 90s. Uh, I grew up in the early 90s. Um, I was a big fan of uh, the rock band uh, Guns N' Roses. I was a real sucker for those big, you know, big beefy guitar solos um, by Slash. Um, And if I wanted to get to know Saul Hudson, a.k.a. Slash, the guitarist of the band, um, what I could do, if I I really wanted to get to know him, what he was like, what his likes and dislikes were, what some of the lyrics of those songs meant that he was involved in writing, uh, what his plans and purposes were. If I wanted to get to know him, I could just listen to his music over and over and over and over again. Could do that. But actually, that's only going to get me so far, isn't it? That's going to, by listening to his music, that's going to tell me something of his skill. It's going to tell me something of maybe the influences he had, but I'm not going to know him. Not in any meaningful way. Um, you see, to get to know him as a person, what sort of person he's like, what sort of character he is, what his plans were and are. I need his words, don't I? I need his words. And so on holiday, I took uh, Slash, the untold story, his autobiography, uh, and read it uh, on, on holiday. And I, there, in his own words... I got to know something about the guitarist whose music I'd listened to uh, in my teens. It's the same is true for God. If we are to get to know him, we can know something of his power and the reality of his presence by looking at the world he's made. But it'll only take you so far. You're not going to know him. Uh, not in any meaningful way. What you need is his words. And David is saying wonderfully, That's exactly what God has given. That's exactly what God has given. And that's why he turns in verses 7 to 11 to focus on the fact that God speaks to us through the scriptures, through his words. Uh, God has communicated in uh, in a way that is even more clear and more wonderful in the pages of the Bible. Uh, In verses 1 to 6, if you just glance through verses 1 to 6, God God is the subject of everything that is said in verses 1 to 6, but he's only referred to once in verse 1. Uh, and there he's referred to as Elohim, which just is a generic term for God. 
we can know there is a God. There must be some sort of maker, some sort of first cause behind the, the creation of the world. But look just in, by contrast at verses uh, 7 to 11. There, God is referred to in every verse, uh, and he's referred to by name. Uh, in English, translated as capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, uh, or the Hebrew Yahweh. You see, if you need, if you want to know God as a person, you want to know his name, you want to know his character, you want to know what he is like, what his plans and purposes are, how to get to know him, how to relate to him, you need scripture. You need his words of scripture. Um, just notice in passing, uh, just in every sentence, David, the writer, is absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that the pages of Scripture that he has, at the very least the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, although written by Moses, are nothing less than simultaneously the very words of God. They're the very words of Yahweh. Uh, in verses 7 to 11, there's, there's a pattern. Even if you glance down at it, it's very obvious there's a pattern uh, we are told about what Scripture is. We are told what Scripture... In each verse, we're told what Scripture is, what Scripture is like, and what Scripture does. What Scripture is, what it's like, and what it does. Um, or, if you prefer the grammar, and perhaps there's grammarians among you, uh, you, uh, you have the nouns, the adjectives, and the verbs. Okay? Let's go through those in, in turn very quickly. What scripture is, what scripture is, first scripture is described as Torah. The word Torah, uh, which is translated here law, uh, is actually a a broader term than law. When you think law, you think the Ten Commandments, but the the Torah actually refers to the first five books of the Bible. Uh, And it contains more than just laws, doesn't it? It contains stories and poetry, uh, prediction, prophecy. Uh, you can maybe think of Torah more helpfully as instruction, the Lord's instruction. Uh, and so a bit like the manufacturer's instructions you get when you buy any electrical item now, um, this is how it should be used. In the same way, God has not left us in the dark. He has shown us if we are to live well in the world that he's made, here are my manufacturers instructions the bible is god speaking about how best to live in his world the bible is god's testimony uh, a bit like that autobiography i was referring to a moment ago it's god in his own words god in his own words god himself telling his own story uh, if we were to get to know him, then you want to listen to what he has to say about himself, about his plans, about his work. And that's what we have in Scripture. We have the Torah. We have testimony. We have precepts. Precepts. Now, precepts are... It's a word we don't use very often in English anymore, and certainly in conversational English. It's really connected to the word practical. Practical. You see, the Bible is not just a a book about philosophy and ideas. It's actually a word that contains practical instruction for how to live your life day to day. 
how to use your tongue, how to relate to your spouse, how to function in your family well, how to relate to your boss, how to use your money, all of those things. All of life is referred to and instruction is given in Scripture. Fourth, we have the Lord's commands in Scripture. The Lord's commands. This book is not a book of advice. Uh, In it are contained the very commands, the very words of God that demand our obedience and trust. Fifth, this should lead us to the fear of the Lord. This is the first hint that this book calls us to respond in some way. It's not just a, a, a textbook, uh, but it's, it's an invitation. This, this, these scriptures, this library of writing, uh, God invites us to respond to him. And we should respond with fear. Now again, please don't think cowering in terror when, uh, of someone about to be hit or beaten up. No, it's this idea of awe and reverence and respect. And lastly, we have the judgment of the Lord. The judgment of the Lord. You see, what we have enshrined in Scripture are God's words about right and wrong. Not only how we should relate vertically to him, but how we should relate horizontally to one another. Uh, And so we have God's verdicts preserved in Scripture. What is Scripture? Well, it's Torah, testimony, precepts, commands, judgments that invite us to respond with fear, awe, and reverence. What is Scripture like? What is Scripture like? We'll not go through each one of these in turn. I think a good summary is verse 7. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The word there, perfect, really carries with it the idea it is perfectly suited for what God intends for it. It contains everything you need to know about him to make sense of this world, uh, to know how God is making things right, and to know how to relate to him. You've got everything you need in this library of writings. And then what does Scripture do? What does Scripture do for us? Well, first it should revive the soul. Revive the soul. Uh, This verse 7 carries with it the idea that the biggest problem for human beings is not external. It's not uh, educational. uh, It's not political. uh, It's not a solution to Brexit. uh, It is not economic Uh, The biggest problem facing human beings today is internal, is internal. We have all all inherited the sinful uh, heart of our first parents. We are all wired to be inclined towards selfishness uh, and pride. We're all inclined to be foolish, to be disobedient to our God and our maker and our king. And we are inclined to self-harm, to self-harm, to make decisions that harm us and other people around us. And so what we need is a solution to our heart problem. And that is what Scripture ultimately can provide uh, as we hear its message of how God, uh, how we, sorry, got into this condition and how God is working a wonderful solution through his Son, our Saviour. 
Second scripture can make us wise. It can make us wise. There's lots of things in this world that can make you clever. Uh, There's a host of stuff on the internet that can make you knowledgeable. Uh, But if you want to be wise, then you need to listen to what God has to say. If you want to understand how to live in God's world, God's way, if you want to understand how to be really fruitful, uh, to be useful for him, to live a life of security and satisfaction, then you need to listen to God's words, which leads us to the next thing. It can give joy to the heart. It can give joy to the heart. Uh, We've said this from the front before. Joy is different from happiness. They're not exactly the same thing. Happiness is your emotions. uh, And happiness is profoundly affected by your circumstances. Joy is something deeper. Joy is that deep-seated delight in God and in his promises that is not affected by your circumstances and is not affected Uh, by your surface emotions. And so according to the Bible, it is possible to know God so deeply, so richly, that even in the midst of your disappointment, uh, even in the midst uh, of your uh, illness, even in the midst of uh, bereavement, uh, even in the midst of financial pressure, even in the the midst of a relationship breakdown, it is possible to have joy, to have joy. A deep-seated calm, a deep-seated confidence in God, but like a deep ocean. There may be waves on the surface, but underneath there is a deep calm and joy in God. Scripture can give us that. Scripture can give light to the eyes. We live in a world where it's, there's so much confusion. Uh, we feel often like we're groping in the dark, trying to make sense Uh, of our lives and our circumstances. But scripture is telling us that in this library that God has wonderfully inspired and given to us, we can know the answer to life's biggest questions with certainty. Where we've come from, where we're going, and to know meaning and significance and purpose and peace in the meantime. Scripture can give light to the eyes. So you see, in light of all of that, in light of all of that, how should you view Scripture? If Scripture can do all of that for you, what should your reaction to it be? Well, David says then, verse 10 and 11, they, the words of Scripture, are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. I appreciate this is an incredibly unlikely question. You're not likely to get asked this one anytime soon. But imagine someone did ask you, Would you take two million pounds as a free, tax-free gift on the one condition you could never read the Bible ever again? What would you do? Well, David says, no-brainer. I'd take the Bible every day, every time. I would take, every time given that choice, I'd take the Bible. I think most of us know in our heads that's the right answer. But I wonder, I just wonder, does our lifestyle reflect that? Does your lifestyle reflect that? Do your habits reflect that? That the Bible is the most precious thing that you have? That's a question only you can answer. Uh, I encourage you to answer it yourself before God today. 
Um, David's big question that he has for us in this section of the song is not so much, how's your Bible reading going and trying to make you feel guilty into doing it? That's not his plan. Uh, His plan is, in fact, his question is, are you enjoying reading the Bible? Are you enjoying it? It's great, isn't it? And he wants you to answer, yeah, it is. Because it can do all of these things for me. Um, Lastly, and very briefly, we see David's response. David's response in verses uh, 12 and uh, to 14 we see not only has God, does God speak to us through the skies, does God speak to us, really, really speak to us through the scriptures, but we can speak back to God even in our sin. We can speak back to God. Um, you see, script, one of the reasons scripture can be difficult to read is that it's actually an uncomfortable read. It's not uncomfortable because it's controversial. Often it's uncomfortable because it's exposing uh, so I remember back to um, my primary school where the dentist came in one day uh, and got us out. Did anyone else have this experience? Where the dentist came in to teach you the importance of brushing your teeth well and blah, blah, blah. And you got to drink this little pink liquid. Anyone have that? I was a dentist here. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. You got to drink this pink liquid. Hilarious when you're 10, right? It's hilarious. You think you've brushed your teeth well that morning and you drink the liquid and it stains the plaque on your teeth. And then you show your teeth to everybody, uh, and they're all stained and ugly looking. Uh, you thought you'd brushed your teeth well that morning, but it turns out you hadn't. You hadn't at all. Um, now, the pink liquid doesn't make your teeth dirty. It doesn't. It just reveals the plaque and the dirt that's already there. And Scripture can have that same uncomfortable experience. It reveals the sinfulness of the human heart. It exposes us, it convicts us of our guilt. Both uh, are um, unintentional wrongdoing. Uh, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. There's, there's things that I've done that I wasn't even aware were wrong. And now that I've read this part of the God's word, I'm convinced, yes, I've done wrong there. But we're, we're also convinced, of course, as well, of our willful disobedience. And so how does David respond when exposed in that way to the uncomfortable message of Scripture? Well, he responds in the model way. Uh, He responds with two steps. First, he admits his failure. Forgive my hidden faults. Forgive me. I I confess I have done what is wrong. Uh, I have no excuses. There's no extenuating circumstances. It was wrong. I did it, and I'm sorry. He admits his guilt. And second, he asks for forgiveness. He asks for forgiveness. Forgive me. Forgive my hidden faults. And then asks for the power to change. Please, man, not always be like this. Please help me resist uh, in the future. And that's the psalm then stops. <laughs> it stops, and it leaves us with a big question hanging. And the big question is, how is it possible for a God who's like this, a God of awesome power and splendor, a God of righteousness and justice, how is it possible that a God like that would accept and forgive someone as messed up as me? How is it possible? How is it possible? And the clue to the New Testament answer is in our final verse, verse 14. May the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And as we read this, uh, this final verse with our New Testament glasses on, we should be reminded of uh, Jesus' words when he described his mission uh, in Mark 10, verse 45, when he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be our Redeemer, to pay the penalty for all our unintentional wrongdoing and willful disobedience. He paid for it all. He paid for it all on the cross. And when we come to him and do those two steps, admit our guilt and ask for his forgiveness, what we find is that we will receive forgiveness. We will receive his Holy Spirit who will bring with him the power to change and he will incline our hearts to want to read this book, to want to study it, to want to understand it, to want to submit to it. Uh, And so if you are here this morning and you don't have that heart, you feel that reading the Bible is boring, is dry and dusty, perhaps where you need to start is asking the Holy Spirit to, to change you, to change you, to give you that heart, to see the beautiful, wonderful things that he has in his word for you. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Uh, You have not connected with the God who's really there yet. Well, David wants to persuade you and then he wants to invite you to respond. You too can know the God who's really there if you simply admit and ask and ask. I can think of no better way to finish than to recite the words of verse 14 together. And I'll pray And we'll celebrate the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus together as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But perhaps we could recite the words of uh, verse 14 uh, together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we want to thank you that you are there and you're not silent Father, thank you that we can know that you're really there just by looking honestly at the world uh, around us in all its beauty and complexity and magnitude. But Father, we thank you that we can understand that communication uh, only as we submit to reading your word. So we pray, please, that you would help us to see the wonderful things that are in your word and what it can really do for us, revive our souls, make us wise, give us joy, give us light to our eyes. Father, we pray, please, that, it would our, that we would share the experience of David. We would commit ourselves to reading this book, this library of books, uh, and find it sweeter than honey, and find it more precious than gold. Not just because our minds are expanded, but that through it we get to know you better. And we understand more clearly what you have done for us in your Son, our Saviour, our great Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we come now just to respond. Uh, and we respond always in three ways when we come to the Lord's table. Uh, first, we repent. We repent. We just take a moment to say sorry. Look back over the week that you've had. 
uh, and ask God to show you if there's been any willful disobedience in your heart or maybe ways that you weren't aware were wrong, that he would bring that to light for you just now, just to repent. We'll give you a moment of silence to do that. But then we don't want to leave you there. We want to move you on to rejoicing. I am really guilty. There's no denying it. But Jesus is really my redeemer. He's really paid for all of that. Uh, And take this meal with joy. Uh, And then we do that. And as we do that together, we recommit our lives to the Lord Jesus. Recommit uh, our lives to his service. Um, And so this is a meal to be shared in by by everyone who would say they've taken those two steps to uh, admit and to ask Uh, for the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. If you've done that and you're a guest here, please feel free uh, to share in the bread and the juice as it comes to you. But if that's not your experience yet and you've still got more outstanding questions, you still uh, feel you have a bit further to travel uh, on your spiritual journey, please feel no embarrassment and just let these elements uh, pass you by.